Welcome to a special May Day bonus edition of I Hate This Town. Uh, today it's just me, MJ. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Hate This Town Pod. You can also find me on Twitter at Tiger underscore Beatdown. Owen is at OHIP13. Producer Nick is at Posts Modernism. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. Just search I Hate This Town. Since May Day is a time to celebrate the legacy of the labor movement and reflect on our continuing struggle for the liberation of the working class, I thought I would take a little bit of time to talk about an important chapter in the labor history of our own town, Pittsburgh. Uh, As a hub of industry during the 19th and 20th centuries, Pittsburgh has a long tradition of union membership and labor activism, probably the most famous being the Homestead Strike of 1892. But the Homestead Strike was preceded by another great battle between the forces of capital and the workers keeping them wealthy, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Before I get too far ahead of myself, I want to make sure that I profusely thank and acknowledge the Howling Mob Society, whose research and writing I am heavily borrowing from here. They're responsible for some of the renegade historic markers you might have seen around the city. And and not only do I want to thank them for the really incredible research they did on the railway strike, but also for these little physical reminders of our shared history of struggle. On their website, they write, In a culture that tells its history through the stories of great men and war heroes, a movement without iconic leaders quietly falls to the wayside. Telling the story of a decentralized social insurrection requires a different approach to history making. It requires that individuals outside the traditional power structure stand up and take responsibility for setting the record straight. This is where we begin our work. Their writing and their work can be found at howlingmobsociety.org, and I highly recommend checking it out. There's a detailed map on their site showing all of the notable locations of the railway strike, which is super, super cool, especially if you live in Pittsburgh and you're familiar with that part of town. Um, You can also find the full text of their historic markers. I definitely borrowed from them heavily for this, but I really, really do recommend reading the whole whole thing. Um, They're really cool. Uh, I also want to shout out the former director of the Pennsylvania Center for the Study of Labor Relations and former professor of industrial and labor relations at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, Charles McAllister. He made a series of videos called Monday Markers with Charlie that were published on YouTube via the Battle of Homestead Foundation, and they're a really great resource. You can see all of these videos on the Battle of Homestead Foundation's YouTube page or via their website at battleofhomestead.org. Last, but certainly not least, I want to thank the countless workers who came before us, especially those who gave their lives in pursuit of their rights and towards the liberation of the working class.
sixth and seventh days of the revolution, July 21st and 22nd, were the darkest and bloodiest of all. The city of Pittsburgh was completely controlled by a howling mob whose deeds of violence were written in fire and blood. Harper's Weekly, August 1st, 1877. The conditions that led to the Great Strike started with the Depression of 1873. Without getting too into the weeds on the history there, the Depression was triggered by a combination of massive westward rail expansion that sparked huge investment with very little initial return, the Coinage Act of 1873, which depressed silver prices across the country, railroad rate wars across the United States, and the resulting collapse of the financial sector. By the summer of 1877, 25% of the country's workers were unemployed. For context, during the last year of the COVID-19 pandemic, unemployment in the U.S. hit a high of 16.7%, so 10% higher than the highest point last summer. In July of 1877, with the country still in the middle of the economic depression, workers at the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company in Martinsburg, West Virginia, were notified that they were going to receive a 10% pay cut. After two previous cuts in pay over the last year, the workers at the B&O Railroad had had enough. On July 16th or 17th, um, I've seen both marked as the start date, workers blocked railways in Baltimore and Martinsburg, demanding that the most recent pay cut be returned to them. Now, at this time, you got to realize that these workers weren't unionized. They didn't have a labor union to organize around. This was a spontaneous formation. The National Labor Union only started in 1866, and the American Federation of Labor wouldn't be officially created until 1881 at Turner Hall in what's now downtown Pittsburgh. In references to the Pittsburgh part of the railway strike, I do see references to a group called the Train Workers Union, but for whatever this union was, it certainly wasn't the kind of union that we think about today. Anyways, the governor of West Virginia quickly called in the militia to put down the strike. Militia members sympathized with the workers and refused to fire on them, at which point the governor had to request assistance from the federal government. As President Rutherford B. Hayes sent out troops to restore railway access, word of the BNO strike spread, triggering strikes in New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Missouri. There are stories of concurrent strikes as far away as Texas. Which brings us back to Pittsburgh. Dissatisfaction with the railroads was already high in the city after the Pennsylvania Railroad Company announced a 10% pay cut for workers in June. The company then announced on July 19th it would implement the practice of double-heading, joining two trains worth of cars into one train with two engines, for all trains moving through Pittsburgh. This would reduce the number of jobs that were available, double the amount of work, and increase the likelihood of accidents. And these were already extremely dangerous jobs. I mean, the prior year, Erie Railroad reported 61 deaths and an additional 53 injuries. That is one death and one injury per week. The same day doubleheading was supposed to go into effect, the superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad in Pittsburgh ordered that effectively issued an order, excuse me, that effectively doubled the mileage of what was considered a day's work, increasing it from 46 miles to 116 miles without increasing the size of the crews. In total, the company would be able to discharge half of their workforce. So they were cutting their crew in half and tripling the amount of work on the remaining crew at a 10% pay cut. On July 19th, one crew announced that they were not going to take their train out. The company called for replacements, but those workers also refused. 
The third crew that was called in were attacked by the previous workers as they attempted to take the train. And this growing group of strikers then took to the stockyards on East Liberty Street, where they convinced the workers there to join them. The group took control of the main track and all of the switches, stopping the rail traffic in and out of the city. The geography of this part kind of escapes me. Um, this is all happening in the downtown East End area, but the particulars are a bit confusing because I can't really figure out which rail station this all kicked off at. Um, I'm pretty sure that the main railway station was downtown where Union Station is now, but the roadhouses for the trains were down in the Strip District. So I'm not entirely certain where all of this specifically was going on, but most of the action takes place between downtown, the Strip District, and Lawrenceville. Um, around this time, the city of Pittsburgh had pretty much lost its entire militia due to the Depression. Their night militia had been cut in half, and their day militia disbanded entirely. The city had tried to call in their remaining militia to break up the strikers, along with a few laid-off militiamen, but they were pushed back from the main switchyard. The militia moved to another stockyard, but found a crowd growing there, too. So by midnight on July 19th, about 1,400 strikers were holding about 1,500 rail truck cars hostage, blocking all train traffic in and out of the city. That night, the vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, Alexander Cassatt, gave the demands to the, of the strikers to the superintendent of the Pittsburgh Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad, Robert Pitcairn. The workers demanded no more doubleheaders, pay reinstated to that of the prior June, rehiring of all laid-off workers, and the abolishment of pay grades for every worker. Pitt Karen refused. And I'm going to be clear here. The railroad absolutely could have afforded to pay these workers more. In 1877, the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, Thomas Scott, made $175,000. In 2021 money, that's over $4 million. At the bottom of a depression, I mean, we're talking the end of a depression that lasted like five years. The average worker, in contrast, worked a 72-hour work week and made about $400 a year, which in 2021 money translates to about $10,000. After the failure of the local militia, the lieutenant governor called up the Pennsylvania National Guard from Philadelphia, and on July 20th, the National Guard faced off with workers at 28th Street and Liberty Avenue in the Strip District, where the official, switch, where the official strike marker is currently at the base of Polish Hill. Despite their efforts, they were not able to take the switches back from the strikers. Just as an aside, if you're not familiar with how railroad switches work, railroad switches allow trains to switch from one track to another. Um, so since the workers held the switches, it wasn't possible for any train to move past the switchyards. They were basically stuck on the same loop, right? Because the train tracks stop. You either switch onto another rail track, which is owned by a different company, or you stop. There's nowhere else to go. So if somebody can't switch the entering trains onto a track that leaves the city, they're just stuck there. And attempting to move the trains, like attempting to switch tracks without having access to the switches would not only destroy the train, it was definitely going to destroy all of the cargo on the train. So this basically allowed the workers to own all of the commerce moving in and out of the city. Um, so on July 20th, the adjunct general of Pennsylvania, James W. Lotta, sent this telegram to state Major General James Beaver. Situation in Pittsburgh is becoming dangerous. Stop. Troops are in sympathy in some instances with the strikers. Stop. Can you rely on yours? On July 21st, the strike became bloody. 
Strikers blocked the tracks while their families and supporters looked on from the hillside. The militiamen brought in from Philadelphia to clear the workers from the tracks and restore train service weren't able to get through the crowd. The workers were said to have taunted the soldiers, We will have bread or blood. We will wade up to our waists in blood before we leave. At about 5 p.m., the militia fixed bayonets and charged the strikers, which fought back by throwing stones. The troops then opened fire on the strikers, turning their guns on women and children watching from the hillside. 20 people were killed, including at least three children. Furious at the murder of women and children by the militia, a mob formed within minutes of the shooting ending, and the troops in Philadelphia were ordered to retreat. The mob began setting fire to the rail yards and looting weapons and growing in number as the riots continued to grow. A group of Philadelphia militiamen were trapped by the mob and took to the Lower Rail Roundhouse at 26th Street, where the MLK busway currently meets Liberty Avenue. They fired repeatedly in the area of a piece of captured artillery up the block on Liberty Avenue, killing 15 of the protesters. In response, the riders lit rail cars full of coal, oil, and whiskey on fire and forced them towards the roundhouse, which caught. Uh, From the Howling Mob Society, the flaming cars were sent careening down the Liberty Avenue tracks into the roundhouse. As flames engulfed the building, General Britton and his troops evacuated on the morning of July 22nd. Using rifles and two Gatling guns to sweep their path, the militia killed an additional 20 civilians while retreating eastward out of the city. The people of Pittsburgh fired tenaciously upon the militiamen from street corners, alleyways, windows, and housetops. Local legend gives name to one of the many individuals who doggedly pursued the retreating troops. Pat the Avenger is described as a calm and collected gunman, emerging from doorways and alleyways, methodically taking aim and firing with great accuracy. It is believed that Pat killed several retreating militiamen. However, stories vary, and no one has been able to verify the man's identity. As the militia fled, they attempted to take shelter at the Allegheny Arsenal in what's now Lawrenceville, also known as Arsenal Park or Arsenal Middle School, uh, and they were turned away by the general there. They continued to flee until they were safely across the Allegheny River in what is now Sharpsburg. The looting and fires continued even after the militia was forced to retreat. The Union Depot downtown was burned, along with the Cincinnati and St. Louis Railroad. By the time the fire department was dispatched, a three-mile stretch of the city was on fire. After the actions of July 22nd, the uprising slowly ended. From Howling Mob again, here the insurrection largely burned itself out as rioters ran out of energy and targets, and looters took home most everything that could be carried off of the stop trains. As the National Guard rolled into the city, they found that the riots had mostly settled. A volunteer force of about 300 armed citizens, organized by the mayor, patrolled the city for the next week but saw little action. Other wage strikes subsequently erupted in surrounding towns such as McKeesport and Braddock, where parading was often successful in achieving settlements and disturbances never reached the fever pitch of Pittsburgh. By July 30th, the railways were operational again. All told, about 53 protesters were killed and about 109 wounded. Fires destroyed 39 buildings, 104 engines, 46 to 66 passenger cars, 1,200 to 1,300 freight cars, and a square two miles of the city had been burned from Grant Street to 33rd Street. 
The strike and ensuing insurrection were widely supported by the city's inhabitants. Um, It's estimated that about 30,000 people participated in the Great Strike and all of the rioting that ensued. In 1877, the population of Pittsburgh was approximately 120,000 people, so that's a quarter of the total population. Roughly half of the rioters were unemployed. The strike is also notable for the widespread participation of women, children, and adolescent boys. But the privileged class that controlled the media went to great lengths to portray the rioters as shiftless drifters, tramps, vagabonds. Some you've heard this one before. This framing masked the widespread outrage felt by average citizens and served to marginalize their protest against the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. In fact, the most in-depth analysis of the 1877 crowd indicates that a broad cross-section of Pittsburghers actively participated in the riot at the Roundhouse, from members of the professional class to unskilled workers to homemakers and train operators. So there you have it. One of the most deadly uh, and violent labor uprisings in United States history happened right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and directly preceded the creation of the American Federation of Labor, um, was directly responsible for increasing the power of the Knights of Labor, or membership of the Knights of Labor, I should say. And a lot of this organizing went into the uh, or the groups that were working together during the Homestead Strike. So um, I think you can say that this was a pretty important, a pretty important part of our history. I mean, I think you could argue that the railway strike was bigger than just a labor action. I mean, it might have started as a labor action, but it grew into this insurgent and spontaneous act of collective resistance against the state and against the forces of capital. Um, if you'd like to help keep the labor movement strong here in the United States, I would please urge you to join the uh, campaign currently being put on by the DSA and Organized Labor to pass the PRO Act. We need people to phone and text bank, um, putting pressure on the Senate to get co-sponsors for the bill. You can get involved at pro-act.dsausa.org. There's a link in the show notes. Um, if you're not into DSA, and you're not into electoralism, that's cool too. You don't have to. Keep agitating your coworkers, keep giving the bosses hell, and no matter what you're doing out there, find each other. Happy May Day. Marching, marching in the beauty of the day. A million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill of scray are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people here are singing bread and roses, bread and roses. As we go marching, marching, we battle to four men, for they